So we just praise God in that opportunity and a report there. And I also want to encourage you to be here next Sunday because we're going to have two young men who are going to get baptized, declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're already following him, but want to do that publicly. So it's a great time to celebrate, and I just want to encourage you to be here, because it's always great to, to see what Jesus is doing in the hearts of people, especially young people. Well, he grew up in his family with his father and two brothers. And as time went on, the oldest brother died. And so the family packed up, and now with wives in tow, they made their way more than 600 miles up the river road to a new place. A place where they set up camp and actually found that their new digs was quite profitable. They made money. It was a very fertile area. Their family acquired lots of property and even household servants. And now that he was in mid-age, and even though his wife and he didn't have any children, it was pretty comfortable. It was pretty nice. It was, it was a good life. But then it happened. He heard the voice. The voice calling him to leave everything he had ever known. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to a land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Does that sound familiar? If you're a Bible student, if you've been through the Bible just once, you probably recognize it as God's call on Abram, or later on Abraham, to leave everything he's ever known, his country, his people, his family, and go to a land that God would show him, that he might bless him, sight unseen. And he does. He picks up everything and he goes. He goes believing God is going to bless him and make him a blessing and make him a great nation, even though him and his wife Sarah, or Sarai at the time, have no children. Why did they do it? Because they took God at his word. And this is what God says a little bit later in Genesis 15 about Abraham, about his faith. Chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he was credited, and he credited to him as righteousness. As we saw last week, if you're in part one of our series here, talking about replacing doubt with faith, we saw that part of the promise to Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, was that of land. In that same chapter 15, again, God says this to to Abraham. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we fast forward 500 plus years. 
And indeed, God has made Abraham's descendants a great nation. It's two million plus people. And they have been delivered by this great God, and they have seen his great power. Delivered from the world power of, of uh, Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea as God splits it, and then closes the door behind them at the pursuing army. They see his power in the desert as he guides them every day, by day with a pillar of smoke and by night with a pillar of fire. They see God's glory on Mount Sinai, and then God gives them his law to tell them about who he is, his character. They set up a tabernacle to represent God's presence, as just as God commanded, and then God meets them very practically every day in a place where there is no resources, with water, with a bread called manna, and even providing meat in quail. And now this people is on the threshold of entering this land that God promised. They have both the promise and they have God's presence. The question is, will they take God in his word? Will they act in faith? Or will they shrink back in doubt and find themselves back in the wilderness? And the question we're asking ourselves is, what about us? Will we take God in his word and step forward into the unknown? Or will we indeed shrink back in doubt? In this whole series of Lessons in the Wilderness, I think this is the most important. Why? Because faith is not part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in part two. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word today. Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself your people, through your word, and ultimately through your son, Jesus. And we want to hear from you. So, sword of the Spirit, come and hit your mark today. Do your work, Lord, through your word. Your surgery, as your word has said, your word will not return void. So we ask you to do your work, your amazing grace work in us today. And where it needs to sting, Lord, would you let it sting? Where it needs to sing in us, Lord, let us hear that song and rejoice. Lord Jesus, is in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Again, I said this is part two. If you were here with us last week, we were in Numbers chapter 13. And you want to crack your Bible open right now. You want to have it between 13 and 14 because we're going to be in 14 most of the time. And if you missed it, um, I'd like to say listen to the recording. Unfortunately, there was a little guffaw and it did not get recorded. But I give you my word, within 48 hours there will be a re-recording of that on the, on the website. So you can hear what the first half was. But we're going to just do a little review of what happened last week. It starts out in Numbers, chapter 13, verse 2, where God says, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan which I am giving to the Israelites from the ancestral tribes, send one of each of its leaders. The living God who spoke creation into being, the living, the universe into being, who's been with them every step of the way. He's given them supernatural provision every day. He is now saying, I am giving this land to you. I'm going to give it to you, just as I promised. As we looked at last week, the main point was faith is about taking God at his word. 
Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Again, these 12 leaders from each of the each of the tribes was sent forward to explore the land that God was about to give them. And for 40 days, they roamed to and fro. And when they returned, they gave a report, and they all agree that this land is a good land. It is flowing with milk and honey. God is bringing us into a good land. But there's also a report that there are some big people in the land, giants, if you will. And this is where the reports diverge. And number two, we saw that we choose our attitude. The first can be one filled with faith, again, taking God at his word. And this was the attitude of Caleb. In verse 30, he says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Again, Caleb's faith was focused on God's promise, God, the goodness of the land, and what he had seen God do along the way. But the majority report, unfortunately, was focused on the obstacles. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. They, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours people living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. And we discovered an attitude of doubt. And doubt we defined as a lack of confidence or assurance that God will keep his promises. Suddenly, the God who had supernaturally provided for them had dissipated and disappeared in their eyes. And this doubt spread like gangrene through the people. First of all, their doubt caused them to distort the reality, okay? They exaggerate the strength of the people. They're stronger than we are, forgetting that they have a force of 600,000 people. And the land, the land, the safety in the land, it devours those who live in it. And then they exaggerate the size of the people. All the people of great size. Well, the truth is they saw three in a town called Hebron. But again, the reality is distorted. Their focus is on their fear as they delivered a false report with doubt. And even worse, in verse 32, it says, And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. This doubt was contagious, and it spread. And in Numbers 14, 1, it says, That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And doubt caused them to question God. They questioned the leadership he appointed. In verse 2, And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they questioned the circumstances that God had them in. Continue on in verse 2, And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. And they even questioned God's motives. Why did the Lord bring us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Their conclusion is that God is against us. That God brought us here to punish us. And then doubt causes them to make some desperate decisions. Continuing on in verse 3. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Verse 4. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
Their doubt made them foolish. They wanted to undo all that God had did over this year and a half plus. Choose a new leader. Go back. And they greatly underestimated, <laughs> was God going to support them on their journey back after they've rejected him completely? And how about the welcome mat that's going to be rolled out to them by their former slave masters? They're making some desperate and foolish decisions. But as we rejoin the story here in Numbers, in the midst of chaos, there is one more attempt to bring the people back to their senses, back to the truth. Here, pick it up at verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. This is an act of contrition. They're falling down face on the ground, but not necessarily to humble themselves before the people, although they were very humble, but to humble themselves before God because they realize this is a very dangerous situation. The attitude that these people are displaying is becoming judgment-worthy. And they are falling down on their face before God saying, Oh God, don't bring it. And then God, and then Joshua and Caleb raise up. It says in verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those people who had explored the land, tore their clothes. They ripped their clothes and basically publicly are, are weeping saying, Don't do this. Stop. Stop. Pay attention here. God is doing something among us and we cannot reject it. They're begging the people, come to your senses. In verse 7 they said, they said to the entire assembly, the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people that are in the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. They're imploring the people, don't miss this. Don't miss what God wants to do in us and through us. Don't miss what God is doing. He's brought us to a good land. He's been with us. He's going to be with us as we go against these giants. God has removed their protection. Don't rebel against God. Know that He is with us. And they're standing up. They're drawing a line. Really putting their own lives on the line. Saying, people, realize who our God is. Realize what He's done for us. Realize what He's bringing us into. Don't be deceived by the obstacles that are in your way. They're calling them into a place, yes, to walk into the unknown, but into the arms of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. That's not wishful thinking, people. That is what God has promised. That hope is not wishful thinking. It is what God has promised. And the assurance of what we do not see, it will be there when we get there. And folks, that's most of following the Lord. God does, uh, does not provide us oftentimes with what we need before we need it. He says, trust me, I will be there. This last week, 
I went down to Omaha to go to the Berean Convention. And folks, let me tell you, I did not wring my hands about whether I was going to have a hotel room or not. Because I had prepaid for it. I had made a reservation. And knew. I had a hope. I had a promise. I had a guarantee that I would have a room. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I've been had reservations. So I've been denied. And, 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 okay, I understand that. We live in a fallen world. But we have a great God who keeps his word. And is never unfaithful. And when he says it, he guarantees it. Because of himself. That's what they're calling the people to realize. But unfortunately, they will not listen. In verse 10 it says, But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Not only do they not want to hear it, they want to punish the messengers. And this is where God steps in. You see, a doubting attitude makes us candidates for God's judgment. Pick it up at verse 10 of 14. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a great nation, greater and stronger than they. Those are pretty sobering words. And folks, I, I just want to tell you that this, this episode in the scriptures, I think, is one of the saddest I've ever read. You see, this people, again, had seen God firsthand. His power, His provision, His protection for a year and a half. But they show utter contempt for who God is. They show utter contempt for His, His person. They basically say God is lying. And they're bowing down to the idol of themselves being in control. And they are worthy of judgment. And I know that's a harsh thing. God is ready to wipe them out, wipe them out for their contempt of his person and start all over again. And this, again, as I said, may seem harsh. But let me point this out also. That all sin is a faith issue and a doubt issue. All sin is a faith issue and a doubt issue. I either believe God for what he said or I don't. And when we sin, it means we're oftentimes not believing him, what he said and who he is. It was true in the garden and it is true today. And the scripture says that the wages of sin is death and they're about ready to get a payment. And someone needs to step in to be their intercessor. But this is where this message sings. You see, a doubting attitude shows our need for an intercessor. And in verse 13 it says, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people out from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. And they have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. 
And that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard about this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Then in verse 17, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Just as you have declared. These are God's words Moses is, is bringing back to him. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation in accordance with your great love. Forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them, just as you asked. Now folks, I just want to step back theologically for a second. And say, what happened here did not surprise God. God's eternal. He sees the beginning from the end. He knew these people were going to fail. He knew this was going to happen. He knew that they would be in danger of judgment. And God felt the pain in the real time. But he also appointed Moses to be that intercessor. Because they were guilty and they deserved God's judgment. He appoints Moses to intercede for the people. And first of all, Moses appeals to God's reputation. God, the nations are going to hear that you weren't able to bring these people into the land. They're going to question your ability. The God who says, I'm almighty. But then Moses appeals to God's character. Even more importantly, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. He appeals to God's character. You see, God appointed an intercessor. And the gospel, the good news that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, is not that we are deserving, but it's about His love, His mercy, and His grace. This is what the Apostle Paul would say about this in Ephesians 2, verses 3 through 5. But all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Literally, we were children of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You see, just as Moses interceded for the people, the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for our sinful rebellion against God, our contempt for his person, and our failure to trust him. And that faith, I mean, that salvation comes by faith. 
Here's the difference between Moses and Jesus, though. Moses intercedes as a faithful foil to reflect back to God his character. God, you can't do this because you promised and you're almighty and the nations will hear about it. You're a faithful God. And God, you can't do this because you are loving and you are forgiving. That's all Moses had to, had to offer. All he could do was reflect back to God who he was. You see, it is a debt that remains yet to be paid. And Jesus, on the other hand, takes that sin that is yet to be paid and he pays it himself through his own blood, his own flesh. Jesus intercedes, taking upon himself the penalty of that sin and then returning back to those who put their faith in him, his righteousness. Indeed, when we approach the living God, and it seems counterintuitive, it's not about being good enough or behaving well enough before him. It's about putting our faith in what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. My question for everyone in this room is, have you put your faith in God's intercessor who takes the penalty for your faithlessness? That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what God is foreshadowing even in this passage. Unfortunately, though, a doubting attitude can also lead to missed opportunities. Again, God has said he's forgiven them. But in verse 21, it says, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but, oh, but disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valley, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them as surely as I live, declares the Lord. I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore uplifted with a uplifted hand to make your home. But Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, as for your children, what you said would be, what, excuse me, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into the land to enjoy, I will bring them into, into enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, 
one for each of the forty days you explored the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in the wilderness. Here they will die. Tough news, isn't it? The good news again is their sin is forgiven. The bad news is they're not going to be able to enter this promised land. For 40 years, as a whole community, with the exception of Caleb and and Joshua, they're going to wander in the desert until that generation dies away. They've demonstrated they don't trust God. They've disregarded who he is, his signs, his wonders. They've shown contempt and now discipline according to their own word. As they said, if only we died in this wilderness. He says, okay, I'll give you what you ask. And as for the children, they said, we're going to be slaves, captured. They're going to come in and they're going to enjoy the promise. Here's the thing. Somehow in God's mystery of his sovereignty, he allows us to make choices that matter. He allows us to make choices that matter. And we don't, when we don't take him at his word, sometimes he allows us to suffer the consequences. And we may get mad at God because we're so used to him meeting us and forgiving us, right? But oftentimes it's because of our own fault, our own folly. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 3 says, A man's own folly leads to his ruin. Yet his heart rages against the Lord. It's our own folly that leads us to our ruin, and yet sometimes we end up shaking our fist at God. You see, in Christ, you can be a criminal, and you can be forgiven. But that doesn't mean you will necessarily be spared from going to jail. As a Christian, you can have an adulterous relationship, and you can be forgiven. But that doesn't mean necessarily that God will save your marriage. We can do things. We can lie. We can be forgiven, but that doesn't mean we're going to be trusted. You know, one of God's most favorite, and I I can say that with, with great confidence, Old Testament saints failed terribly. David, a man who says, he's a man after my own heart. But when he had a relationship, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, killed off his husband, covered it up, there were consequences. He was forgiven. But there were consequences. The sword would never leave his family. And yet even within that, there was redemption. But God allows us to make choices. And he doesn't often shield us from those consequences. God would still be faithful to care for his people, but this opportunity, unfortunately, would never return to this generation. And here's what I want to ask you. Is there an opportunity that God has put before you and you're letting slip by because you're not willing to believe him? You're not willing to trust him? You're not willing to know that he'll meet you on the other end of what you cannot see? This is, we have one shot at life. 
And God allows us to make choices. Choices that are count, that count. And here's another principle. If you're a leader, God holds you to a stricter standard and to a stricter judgment. And now this judgment would come upon those ten leaders who offered a bad report. Verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading the bad report about it, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. And as these consequences take hold and the news of it starts to spread, there's a lot of grief and a lot of regret in the camp. Verse 39. When Moses reported this all to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. And I think I would too. I think I would too. As they came face to face with the consequences of their sin, of their rebellion, they mourned bitterly. And unfortunately, it doesn't get better. Because the next day, the next day, they presume upon God's grace. And presumption is a perversion of faith. Presumption is a perversion of faith. Verse 40. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses says, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there, because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point of the hill country, Though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp, and then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. You know, the conclusion of the story is unfortunately more anecdotal, anecdotal evidence that these people had a hardness of heart and they were unwilling to listen to their God who warned them. You know, God desires us to trust Him, to take bold steps for Him, but only according to what He has revealed to us. And here's where we get in trouble. When we read our own desires onto God's Word and will and act on it, especially when it's contrary to God's words, it is not faith, it is presumption. And God indeed is a good Heavenly Father. He really is. He loves you. He loves me greatly. But he is not our genie in the bottle. And we are people that need to follow him and let him be God rather than asking him to follow us. Now, folks, let's face it. This isn't the most feel-good sermon I've ever preached, right? It's a little heavy. It's sobering. And the Apostle Paul again has said, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, These things happen to them as examples, 
that were written down as warnings for us. I don't know how this sermon has impacted you. If there's some of the stuff I brought up about doubt that's kind of stung you, I want to tell you something. It's not there to condemn you. It's there to warn you and to turn you away. The good Heavenly Father is in the business of warning His children not to go down a path of destruction. And that's where the goodness is. But I also want you to know that there is hope even within this. The question for us, though, ultimately, is how big is our God? Do we really believe that this is the same God we are following today? Is the same God who provided manna for his children in the wilderness? Is he the God we're following today? The God who split the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk on dry land. Is he the same God we're following today? The God who raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead. Even though he was crucified, had a spear put in his side, pierced his heart, allowing um, blood to flow, make sure that he was dead. Is he the same God we're following today? How big is our God and will we take him at his word? Which, my friends, again, sometimes will mean stepping out into the unknown. Being confident that he's going to meet us on the other end. It's not wishful thinking again. It's what he has promised. The tragedy again of this story, is what God intended for blessing for these people. They rejected. And Jonah, Jonah says from the belly of the whale, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Unfortunately, these people forfeited the grace of the land that could be theirs. That's the lesson of this story for us. God is putting before us opportunities. That will pass us by. Let's not forfeit that grace. What is God saying to you? Through his word. Or maybe even someone God has raised up as a Caleb, if you will. Say, trust him. He's going to meet you on the other side. Do we believe him? Do we take him at his word? But I also want to be real with you. I want to be human with you. You and I are going to make choices that are going to be faithless, not full of faith. And we have to realize that God is bigger even than that. And I want to leave you with these words. And as I do, I'd like the worship team to come on up. This is out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And reminding us that God has appointed an intercessor. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But, but, if anyone does sin, and folks, we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Yes, 
there's a lot of sting in this message. But this is where the message also sings. We have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. And he's greater than our sin and our failure. We can praise God for that. Let me pray for us and then we'll have the worship team lead us. Lord, we are sobered by this message. And too often we we can judge the foolishness of your people in the past. But how often, Lord, have we said, I'll never doubt you. And then we come to a moment where our our giants, our opposition get in the way of us taking you at your word. Would you forgive us? Would you grow us? Would you grow us, grow us in the grace of trusting you? And grow us in the grace of putting our faith in you and what you can do in us and through us, not what we can do ourselves. The message has always been not that we are a great people, but that we serve a great God who is able to get us to where we need to be, who is able to do in us and through us what we cannot do ourselves, and is able to reconcile a sinful people to himself, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we will give you glory, Lord. Jesus is in your name I pray these things. Amen.